If you have your Bibles today, we are in Luke chapter 2 for our Bible study time. If you don't have a physical Bible, but you got a smartphone, you can download the Bible app or maybe our Journey app, follow along there. If you don't have any of those things, no big deal. Everything I read from Scripture will be on the screen behind me, so it'll be really easy to follow along. We're really glad you're here. We're in week three of a series called Weary World Rejoices, where we focus not just on the truths of Christmas that happen, but the truths of Christmas that promises not just that Jesus came, but that Jesus is coming back. Um, we've been through hope. We've been through faith. Today, we'll be on joy. So let me ask you a question. What are some of the things in your home that, that signify like Christmas is here, the holidays have started? For me growing up, that was um, Christmas movies. That was one of the things that kind of transitioned our household from like not Christmas to Christmas is that we would watch Christmas movies. And the first one I remember watching, like in elementary school, the staple movie in the Newsome household uh, was A Christmas Carol, the great you know, piece of literature, the Dickens, A Christmas Carol, that they turned into a movie, the one with George C. Scott as Ebenezer Scrooge. Anyone seen that one? Just like a classic movie. I'm not sure I was old enough to watch it at the time because I was afraid of the last ghost most nights between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the shadowy one. But I remember every year watching that until another piece of great literature um, was, was turned into a, a movie script. This one was called Christmas Vacation. Um, and it was about um, another uh, Academy Award-winning uh, actor, Chevy Chase, um, who starred as Clark Griswold. And like Christmas Vacation became, became one of our family staples and is one of my favorite movies of all time. And as I think about what we're hoping to accomplish in this Advent season, I feel like, I feel like some of us are having some Griswold moments. Because we're coming into church and we're saying, yes, I'm going to have hope. And then we leave church and like life hits us in the face and we don't have hope. And last week we come into church and we're like, I'm going to have faith. And then Monday the problem is bigger than the promise and we don't have faith. And today it's like we're going to have joy until like we don't have joy. There's a scene in, um, in Christmas Vacation where Clark Griswold has put lights on his house. Remember, and he's standing out in, his, in front of his yard, 25,000 Italian twinkling lights and he's got one extension cord and another extension cord. He makes all of his family come out in the yard. And if you've seen the movie, I feel like I'm the only one. Okay, so, so, so you're tracking with me. Yeah, and he, yeah, he asked for the drum roll. Like, his parents are out there. They're so proud of him. His in-laws are out there. They hate him. His kids are out there. They're embarrassed. And he's like, drum roll. So they give him the drum roll. And he, and he says, joy to the world. And he goes, Pew! and nothing happens. The lights don't come on. And he goes from joy to the world to sheer chaos. He has a little figurine in his front yard of Santa in a sleigh with reindeer. He punches Santa in the face and then kicks him into the shrubs. And then he runs up and down the row of reindeer. He breaks off one row of antlers, and on the way back, he breaks off the other row of antlers. It's one of the greatest scenes in Christmas movies. And then eventually, like, he figures out, like, like you know, there's just a switch that needs to be flipped. But in a moment, he went from the joy of Christmas to the chaos of life not working. And I thought, that's probably what Advent feels like at Journey. We come to church, we hear about hope, we hear about faith, we hear about joy. Spiritually, we desire all of these things to be true. But a lot of times, man, like life is just not connecting, the power doesn't come on, and everything falls apart in an instant. Believe it or not, that is not too far from the biblical Christmas story. Um, the biblical Christmas story does not start with joy to the world. As a matter of fact, if you read every sentence individually and you ask some questions, like you would ask questions if you were reading a book, we actually realize as we get into our Bible study outline today, number one, that Christmas actually is a reminder of the end of joy. 
Like, not only does it not begin with joy, it reminds us that, like, joy has been lost as we dig into the narrative. So we've been reading the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. We've got through verse 7 last week. As we pick it up in verse 8 today, it says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Have you ever wondered why everybody was so afraid of angels? Like, you ever read the Bible, like you're reading a book, and like, you pause every now and then and think, I wonder why that was. Any of you have, questions, any of you have kids who used to interrupt you with questions about the book you were reading to them at night, almost to like an annoying, yeah, like occurrence? Like, if you were reading this to your kids, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, they were terrified. Like, my daughter Casey would be like, Dad, why, why, why are they afraid? I don't know. Well, yeah, but why are they for Well, angels are scary. Why are angels scary? Because they eat children who ask too many questions. Like, my God, I don't know. It's like, I wasn't there. I'm just reading the story. Just, you know what? We're just going to go to bed. We're like, this, like, why is everybody afraid of angels? Like Luke chapter one, an angel shows up to John the Baptist's dad. And one of the first things he says is, you don't need to be afraid. Luke chapter one, an angel shows up to Mary. And after greeting her with Oh, highly favored one. He's like, you don't have to be afraid. Matthew chapter one, an angel shows up to Joseph in a dream. And the first thing he says is, you don't have to be afraid. Like, shouldn't we ask the question, why is everyone afraid of angels? What's the big deal that when an angel shows up, everybody, everybody's freaked out? That's a really good question to ask spiritually. The answer's not found in the Christmas story. Uh, Matthew chapter one doesn't answer that question. Luke chapter 1 doesn't answer that question, but believe it or not, there is an answer to the question, why are all these Jewish people so afraid of angels? But you've got to go back. See, the Christmas story, at least to understand it like Luke tells it, the Christmas story starts in Genesis 3. Not in Matthew 1, not in Luke chapter 1. The Christmas story starts with the world falling apart and God needing to put it back together. I won't read all of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 to you, but if I could summarize it, I would kind of summarize it this way. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and right after he did that, Adam and Eve created sin and rebellion. And just everything fell apart. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the world is perfect, perfect place, perfect relationship with God, everything is good. By Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had decided to live life their way instead of God's way, and it just it broke things, and everything fell apart. And God shows up and says, don't worry, I got it. I know you broke it, I'm going to fix it. Just not now. You say it again. God shows up in Genesis 3 and says, don't worry, you broke it, I'll fix it later. And he gives this message in Genesis chapter 3, speaking to Satan in the form of a serpent. He says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, caused humanity to live for themselves rather than God, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, uh, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You're like, yeah. Like, Satan messed this up, but God's gonna crush his head. Like, when's this gonna happen? I'll buy it on pay-per-view. If it's available, I would like to see the hell head-crushing thing. That sounds fascinating. Adam and Eve have to think, he bailed us out. Um, we messed it up, but God, like, God's gonna take care of it. There is this massive future triumph promised. There's this massive great news, just not for them and not for now. Further down in the chapter, God's like, and as for you, Adam and Eve, the Lord God made 
garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man's now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim or angels and a flaming, flashing sword back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The first angels presented to humanity that interacted with people, presented to the Jewish people, were people who would, were angels who would kill you if you got too close to God. Their job was to form a barrier of separation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity and to remind them the door was closed. So when a Jewish person saw an angel, the context was, this angel's job is to kill me if I get too close to God. This angel's job is to remind me of my sin. When you look at the first angels in scripture, they were all reminders of the consequences of sin. They were all reminders of the separation from God's immortal and eternal presence and plan for us. So when they saw an angel knowing their own sin, they would immediately draw back because they thought that angel's there to protect me from a door that's closed to getting too close to God. And this would have been a really sad sight. Can you imagine Adam and Eve with their backpacks? Um, leaving, leaving the garden, probably took as much as they could carry. Um, you can imagine their tear-stained faces as they're walking away, looking over their shoulder. Uh, they're not getting along with each other. I mean, we find out Eve blamed Adam, Adam blamed Eve, they both blamed somebody else. So they're not getting along with one another, they're not getting along with God. This perfect place that's been created for them is ruined. Like this, this is a really sad picture, like this perfect joyful place God has created is over now. And it's all their fault because of sin. I think this is a good time, even though we're in the midst of this Christmas story, just to remember this discipleship principle. Sin spoils joy. Like God has created some really good things for you to live and enjoy and as a follower of Jesus. But your sin will spoil those things. I had an opportunity to uh, pray with a woman between our 9.30 and 11 o'clock service about this point in the message. Uh, her, her story um, was like many of your stories. Um, her husband left her and her kids. And she reminded me, sin doesn't just spoil your joy. Sometimes it ruins everyone's. There are some of you here today who are followers of Jesus, but you're living in sin. And you need to realize you will never be able to live in joy if you continue to live in sin, you need to repent, you need to confess, and you need to just get back on the right track following Jesus. Darkness might last for a night, but joy comes in the morning of repentance. Just an important part of this story. It's interesting, Paul David Tripp and the devotional book a lot of us have been reading in this Advent season, Oh Come Let Us Adore Him, said on December 5th, describing sin, he says, let me define the brokenness of sin which every human being shares with five words, and here's how he defines sin. Separation, inability, delusion, judgment, hopelessness. Or to say it our way, sin spoils joy. Thank God. The beautiful news of the Christmas season is that God wasn't willing to leave us in this tragic and desperate state. But it's only when you accept the very, very bad news of Jesus' birth, we were separated from God and kept away by angels, that you'll then be excited about its very, very good news 
that the doorway has been opened and now we have been invited by angels. As a matter of fact, if you study the rest of Scripture after Genesis chapter 3, almost every time you see an angel, they are telling people not that the door is closed, stay away. They're telling people the door is open, come close. Almost every time a supernatural messenger speaks, it's to invite people closer to God, not to keep them away. Which means if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, somebody brought you to church or maybe you just wandered in today because you're in a low point of your life, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the door is closed and there's somebody to separate your sin from Jesus. The, door, the, 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 the truth of the gospel is that the door is open. And because of Jesus, you can be invited into a relationship with God. That, that's what the angelic messenger was trying to say. But unfortunately, these people had experienced thousands of years of, of the end of joy. Thankfully, because the angel showed up, there was an announcement, number two, of the end of tears. So if Christmas reminds us that at one point joy ended, it also is announcing to us that, that tears will end as well. In Luke chapter 1, or Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, Shepherds are scared to death, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. I want to unpack two groups of two words. The first is good news. It's a Greek word that, that almost looks like an English word. It's the word evangelizo. It literally means to announce good news. It literally, it doesn't mean anything about Jesus, and it doesn't mean anything about becoming a Christian. In Greek context, this word means to tell people something good that is happening. Luke uses this word 24 times in his book. It's one of his favorite words to say this. This entire book that I'm writing is just to tell you about this guy, Jesus. He's unbelievable. As a matter of fact, Luke actually begins his book, Luke chapter 1, is him writing to a friend basically saying... Here's the whole purpose of this letter I'm writing you. I heard about this guy named Jesus. He's unbelievable. You should hear about him too. The word evangelism does not mean convert. The word evangelism does not mean to make someone a Christian. The word evangelism literally means to just tell someone who Jesus is and what he did. We are not responsible to convert people. We're just responsible to tell people about Jesus because he's amazing. Look how Luke says this in the beginning of his book, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled us. He's like, lots of people talking about Jesus. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus' friend, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Luke's like, so many people were talking about Jesus, I decided to check it out for myself. Seems to be true. I want to tell you what I found. It's incredible. Evangelism is not converting people to Christianity. It's just telling them about Jesus. And I think one reason sometimes followers of Jesus are hesitant to evangelize is because we think we can fail. Like, well, what happens if they say no? It's not really on you. Your job isn't to make them say yes. Your job is just to say, you should hear about Jesus. This guy is, is incredible. It's one of the reasons we have the number of Christmas services that we have so that everyone can invite someone at Christmas for us to tell them about Jesus. Journey doesn't convert people. Christian doesn't convert people. The prayer at the end doesn't save people. What we do at Christmas is we just say, Christmas is about Jesus. He's really cool. You should know about it. It's just an announcement to people. 
So it's seven services over four days. We don't need that many services. I have people ask all the time, you need that many services? No, I'd prefer not to have that many services, honestly. We're only having service Thursday night because on a normal day, a normal Sunday at Journey, we'll have 450 people in the building who are under the age of 11. Most of those go visit grandma and grandpa on Christmas. So we know when school lets out Friday and dad gets off work or mom gets off work, a lot of our families are going to pull out of town and they're not going to be here for Saturday and Sunday services. So Thursday is for people in our church family who'd like to have Christmas services with their church family and invite their Kansas City friends, but they're going to be out of town. Thursday is, is to get ahead of weekend travel because we love our church and we want to be together at Christmas celebrating Jesus. A couple on Saturday, a couple on Sunday. My hope for you is that you wouldn't come alone because followers of Jesus evangelizo. We, we have good news. We, we hope you will like it too, but I have to tell you. Luke goes on to say that the angel said the good news is that great joy is coming. This is a fascinating word in the original Greek language. It can be defined a lot of different ways. The root of the word is charis, which means gift. I've got good news. You have a gift. But here's how it, if you look at secular Greek literature, this word could be translated cheerfulness. Good news. It's going to bring cheerfulness. Good news is going to bring calm delight. I've got good news. It's going to make you glad. I've got good news. It's going to give you exceeding joy. Here's the most fascinating thing, though. This verb tense tells us that this word derives from a verb most commonly used as a greeting, which means this. The vast majority of time this word is used in ancient history, it's used this way. Two people connect on the street. As they're leaving, they say something like this to one another, be well. Not like have a good day, but like be well. This literally means, if we were to define this in 2023 modern English, it means the angel showed up and said this, I've got good news. You're going to be okay. Jesus is here. You're going to be well. Not you're going to be happy, not you're going to smile, not you'll have joy, but that you will be okay in joy because Jesus is here. The angels are literally saying to the shepherd, good news, you're going to be okay now because Jesus is here. I don't know why the shepherds needed to hear that 2,000 years ago, but I do know why some of you need to hear it because I know enough families in our church to know there are some people right now who are really struggling in their marriage. There's some people who are struggling with their family, with their kids, with their grandkids. We have people who are struggling financially. We have people who are making massive career changes. We have people who've had terrible diagnosis the last month. What you need to hear today, this Christmas, like that Christmas, is there's good news. You're going to be okay because Jesus is here. Please hear me. It might not be okay but you will be okay in the midst of it because Jesus is here now. That's the message of these angels. Like, tears are coming to an end because Jesus is here now. Doesn't mean everything's perfect, but it's gonna be okay. You're gonna be well because, like, Jesus is here. He said, Christian, if you knew my situation, you would know that I'm not going to be okay. I'd push back a little bit. Um, we meet a man in the Bible whose name is Peter. He's one of Jesus' best friends. He becomes kind of his like, lead minister after Jesus is done. And he ends up writing two letters that we have in the New Testament, probably while he's in prison in Rome waiting to be martyred because he will not recant his faith 
or the story that he saw a man die, be buried, and come back to life. So he's writing letters um, from prison in Rome waiting to be killed. And in his letters, he's writing to Christians, just giving them one last shot of discipleship, encouragement, like, like before, before he's killed. And he says this in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen Jesus. Writing to people who've become Christians after Jesus had ascended from heaven. So they've never seen him with their own eyes. Though you've not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you can't see him right now, you believe in him. And because of that, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible means you can't explain it. Glorious is a word that means weight, means you can feel it. Listen to what Peter said. Let me make it real personal. I know no one in this room, and those of you watching online, I know you've never seen Jesus because he lived on earth 2,000 years ago. I also know some of you right now cannot see Jesus in your situation. I know that. I know if you told me your situation and we sat down and tried to figure it out, I wouldn't be able to see him either. But I also know if you will focus on him, you will not be able to explain it, but you will feel the joy that he is with you. Situation, bad. But my perspective, I, I, I cannot see what Jesus is doing, but because I choose to trust him in his promises, can't explain it, I feel joy. I say it's the end of tears because we are told in Scripture that joy can run away from tears, can, can run tears away. Not in the Christmas story, 450 years before. 450 years before that, we meet a pair of brothers. Um, at least one of them works for a government. Maybe, maybe they both do. Um, one lives in modern-day Israel. One lives in modern-day Iran. 450 years before the birth of Jesus, it was called Persia. Uh, we meet a guy by the name of Nehemiah whose brother lives in Israel, um, and he heads across the desert to visit his brother, and he's like, how's things going? And he's like, it's a mess. Jerusalem is a mess. Nehemiah works for the government of Persia at the time. He goes to the king, and he's like, I need to go, I need to go home um, and help figure some things out. He comes back to Jerusalem, and over a period of a few years, 52 days to build the walls, but over a few years, he kind of rebuilds the city uh, rebuilds the community, rebuilds the sacrificial system. He's got a, a priest with him named Ezra, who in Nehemiah chapter 8, they call into this newly rebuilt city to have church. We learn that it is the first day of the seventh month, which means a lot, if you know what it means. Um, that would be the month in Israel that kicked off uh, everything that would be important spiritually. We'll call it October because it usually is in our schedule. If you went back to your calendar, you'd see some of these words. First day of the seventh month was kind of the kickoff of the new year in Israel, um, and they would celebrate Rosh Hashanah on the first day of the seventh month. We call it the Festival of Trumpets. And 10 days after Rosh Hashanah, on our calendars, we see a day called Yom Kippur, which in the Bible is the Day of Atonement. Anyone who's a serious Orthodox Jew practicing, practicing the Jewish religion would every day from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, they would keep a diary or a journal, and they call these 10 days in between days of mourning or days of reflection. And here's what you would do. Every day from Rosh Hashanah, first day of the seventh month to Yom Kippur, you would literally mourn, lament, process, confess everything that had gone wrong the year before. So you'd have 10 days just to like take spiritual inventory of everything that had gone bad 
And you'd have day of mourning number one, day of mourning number two, day of reflection number four, number five. I do this every year in my journal. I could show you my journals. I follow this calendar like an Orthodox Jew because of just what it does in my own personal faith. And then they would get to day 10, Yom Kippur, and they would take all of those experiences and they would give them to God and say, thank you for forgiving these and covering these and allowing me to start over. The next day they'd have a party that would then be followed by a seven-day festival called Sukkot, where they would literally go stay in tents in their backyard. Festival of Tabernacles is what we call it. After those seven days, they would come back and have one more big community-wide cookout, and they would all celebrate what they had remembered about God as they started their month, that God was with them, that they were God's people, that God loved them and forgave them, um, and that the world they lived in now was temporary because God had an eternal home for them. This was the seventh month in Israel, every seventh month. It's in the midst of this seventh month in Nehemiah chapter 8 that the people are mourning how bad things are, what's going on in them. Like Nehemiah is trying to celebrate, but the people are like crushed spiritually that Nehemiah utters this verse that you've all heard if you've been in church, but maybe you didn't know the context. He says to the people as he's trying to get them to like go do the festival stuff, go and enjoy your choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We should now ask the question, because our little kids would, what is the joy of the Lord? Easy. In context, the joy of the Lord is this. God is with you. You're his people. Your sin and the sins of others against you can be covered and forgiven. This world is not your permanent home. Thank God. Amen? There is an eternal kingdom you get to be a part of one day. Those things, when you focus on them, that joy makes you strong spiritually, even when everything else is going wrong. So Nehemiah's like, you don't have to have tears anymore. You don't have to cry. Because God knows you, God loves you, you're his, he's forgiven you. He's reminded you this world is not all there is, thank God. There's an eternal kingdom. Man, have joy because of who God is and what God is doing. Good news, great joy. By the way, for those of you who were angel number three in your church play 20 years ago, what happened to the word behold? Right? Like, did anyone ever quote this with little broken wings on their back? The uh, angel number three with a little, you know, in my day they used to have a hanger that they would put like this gold tinsel around if you were an angel. And the kid in the play at this point would say this, behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. You know, it's not in the New International Version. One of the reasons I'll be going away from preaching in the NIV in the new year, I'm going to switch over to the ESV. Sometimes it's just in the best English translation. They took it out because they thought it was an old English word that didn't apply, but it's in the Greek. Like, they really said it. It's not an old, it's not an old English Shakespearean word. It's a Greek word. The angel said it. And when you translate the Greek word behold, it means this. Always think about this. So let me give you the phrase in its entirety. Angel shows up. Shepherds are terrified. Angels say, don't be afraid. Always think about this. You're going to be okay. Jesus is with you. Behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Let's, let's say it like it would be said today. Don't be afraid. Just always be thinking about this. You're going to be okay. Jesus is here. It may not be okay, 
but always think this way. You're going to be okay because Jesus is here. So we see the end of joy, see this announcement that eventually there'll be the end of tears, but all of this is because, number three, there's going to be an end of the separation between God and his people. Look at verses 16 through 20. So the shepherds hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. We're going to go fast, but we're not going to be in a a hurry, because we see four things here that we just read that will allow us to find joy. If you don't care about finding joy, you can tune out. If you think, I need that, tune in, because we see how like the shepherds define joy. Letter A, we need to diligently and daily have a pursuit of Jesus. It said the shepherds hurried to get to Jesus. I believe if the first thing you did every morning when you woke up was hurried to get to Jesus, that it would slow everything else in your day down. So I've got a Bible reading group I'm in with a group of men, and about halfway through the year, we quit talking about what we were learning in the Bible, and we started talking about what we were learning about ourselves because of the Bible. And just spending time with Jesus. I think it was one of our Bible studies in the middle of the summer where I said, okay, everybody put their Bibles away. I don't want to know anymore about what you're learning in the Bible. Here's what I want to know. How has spending time with God every day changed you? And here was the consensus, at least of the guys in my group. The message was the same from almost everyone, and it went something like this. Usually the minute my alarm goes off or a minute before my alarm goes off, I wake up and my mind is going 1,000 miles an hour with things I have to do that day. But when I pause and read my Bible and journal a little bit and pray, like it just slows everything down the rest of the day. Takes off the edge. When I hurry to meet with Jesus, everything else slows down. When I try to hurry through everything so I can get to Jesus by the end of the day, usually I don't even get there. And if I do, I'm out of breath and my time with him doesn't work at all. You see, I want to find joy The end of this year in 2024, every day wake up and hurry to get to Jesus. Letter B, do that so you can see the Savior with your own spiritual eyes. It's cool. So two people are told the story of Jesus' birth in the four verses we just read. One of them see Jesus with their own eyes. One of them hear about Jesus from somebody who saw him. One group was changed on the inside and had a perspective shift that was vertical Another group just thought it was a cool story. We read that the shepherds were told by the angels, Jesus has been born, go see him. And when they saw him with their own eyes, it says they return um, glorifying and praising God. Glorifying, again, means to feel it. They felt the weight of who Jesus was, and they had this vertical relationship. They glorified God. They then went and told other people in the town what had happened, and it said those people were amazed, but it does not say they connected with God at all. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the Bible do we read anyone who, because of this night in Bethlehem, became a follower of Jesus. There were those who were amazed by the story, but it doesn't appear that they were changed. And then those, there were those who were impacted by the Savior because they saw him with their own eyes. Some of you are at the point in your walk where you are followers of Jesus who have never seen with your own eyes what someone else didn't see first. But you can. This is the word of God to the people of God. 
We have this year what we're calling our 1% come and surrender year. Come and surrender 1% more of your life for, for kingdom living for the purpose of kingdom movement. 14.4 minutes a day. We said you could read the entire Bible through in a year if you wanted to. We've got all of our Bible resources out underneath the Jesus wall. What we're trying to do is help your eyes connect directly to the truth of heaven that God wants to give you through his word. Some of you have never heard anything spiritually that someone hasn't prepared for you first. You're like this second group. You might be amazed at Jesus, but you've never had deep heart change because you've never really spent any time on your own studying him. Let 2024 be the year you see him through his word, through devotionals with your own eyes. You know, the, the people who were told by the shepherds, amazed but not converted. You have to think that when the message comes from a, from a broken vessel rather than a supernatural one, that it probably loses some of its power. And I'm a shepherd. If the only person you ever hear scripture from is a broken vessel, it's gonna lose some of its power. But if you get it from the supernatural source, like the shepherds did, and you open your eyes to who Jesus is, it could change you at the heart level and in a vertical relationship with God. Letter C, create ways for your head to keep reminding your heart of the gospel of joy. I love this. It's again a pretty bad English translation. It says, Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. That's not actually what Luke wrote. Luke wrote this, Mary treasured all these things up in her heart and pondered them. He separates treasure and ponder. Watch this. Mary treasured up all the experiences she had in her heart. But the experiences ended. So her head had to keep thinking about the experiences she'd had with Jesus and reminding her heart about those. All of us are going to have deep experiences with Jesus in our faith walk that come and then we move on. And what we learn from Mary is the experiences that are in our heart only continue to live in our faith if we continue to remind ourselves of those things. Some of you are facing something in the next three weeks that you are scared to death of that is exactly like something that happened 15 years ago that God stepped in at just the right time and you have forgotten to have your head tell your heart, we've already done this and we're gonna be okay. Like we did this in middle school, we did it in high school, we did it in college, like... We've already had this experience. We're going to be okay. You say, I want to find joy. Have your head. Keep telling your heart. Remember when. Remember when. So you can find joy. Then if you really want to have joy, letter D, make sure you live in spiritual community that keeps their ABCs too. I love how it says the shepherds went back together and they continued to talk among themselves. We see a plural noun used three times. They hung out with people who'd had similar Jesus experiences and they all kind of talked about them together. One of the reasons so many of you struggle to have joy on a daily basis is here's your reality. You don't have one person you spend time with who has a diligent and daily pursuit of Jesus. You don't have one person you talk to on a daily basis who has seen the Savior with their eyes that day. You don't have one person in your life who keeps reminding themselves of what Jesus has done. Like you, you're all on an island together and no, nobody's thinking about Jesus. You have to have spiritual community because on the days when you're beginning to wonder, you need your friend to say, listen, you're okay. Remember the, remember the Bethlehem? Remember the angel thing? We're good. Just keep reminding one another 
of the joy that you have. If I could give you a bottom line today, and then a little bit of biblical truth, I would say this. Um, If you have Jesus, you have joy. Jesus brings joy. That actually is, um, it would be theologically impossible for you to have Jesus and not have joy. Here's why. Not saying you don't experience joy, but it's theologically, it's biblically impossible for you to have Jesus without joy. Because the Bible says that when you become a Christian, God gives you his Holy Spirit as a deposit of what you're going to become when you're with him uh, forever. And while you might be able, when you go buy a car, to pick a specific package, or you might, you know, eat a meal that has a couple sides assigned to it, like, when you receive the Holy Spirit, everyone gets the same trim package. It comes with nine things called spiritual fruit, and one of those is called joy, which means this. You carry around a backpack, if you're a Christian, called the Holy Spirit, that has joy inside of it. You cannot take it off. You cannot lay it down. It's like stuck to your soul now as as the guarantee that you're a Christian who's one day going to be with Jesus and like Jesus. It means every moment of every day, you have joy somewhere in your soul, but you only experience it when you pull it out and remember. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Next week, peace. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have joy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But you only experience it when you focus on Jesus. And you experience it most when you focus on the fact that he's coming back to get you, thank God. Like Nehemiah said, when you remember God knows you, loves you, forgives you, that this world is not your home, one day you're going to be with Jesus forever, that changes how I feel about everything. I'm going to go back to Clark Griswold standing in his front yard as we close. Pulling the plugs together. Joy to the world, boom, doesn't connect. Did you know Joy to the World is not a Christmas song? Wasn't written to be that initially. In 1719, a Methodist pastor by the name of Isaac Watts was writing poetry through the Psalms. And Psalm 98 is a psalm about Jesus coming back. And he wrote a poem about Psalm 98 celebrating the fact that Jesus would one day come back to rule the entire world. And about 100, 150 years later, A music teacher in Boston found that poem, set it to music, and released it at Christmas time, and everyone thought it was a Christmas song, but it really wasn't written about Christmas. It wasn't, it was written about Jesus coming again, and the thought that when he did, it would change everything, and that would bring joy. Think about that through the lens of the song now, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Not as a baby, as a king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Verse one says, when the king comes back, it will change everyone in the world. Verse two says, it changes the world itself. Joy to the earth. The savior reigns. Let all their songs, now he's talking about nature singing. Let all the songs of earth employ God's going to recruit everything on earth so that they talk about Jesus. The fields, the floods, the rocks, the hills, the plains, they're going to repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. What is the sound of joy? Jesus is coming back. Repeat it. Repeat it. 
Repeat it. Repeat it. Jesus is coming back. Isaac Watts, 300 years ago, says, when I think about Jesus coming back, I just want to repeat it until I can't forget it because that is the sound of joy. Jesus is coming back. See, for some of us, knowing that Jesus came 2,000 years ago doesn't change how we look at next week. But knowing that Jesus may come back next week, that change how you look at next week. So Watts says, repeat it. Repeat it. Repeat it. Repeat it. Don't forget it. Say it. Think about it. Ponder it. Remind your heart. Jesus is coming back. That brings joy. You're going to be okay. What has God said to your heart today? How do you need to respond in your heart posture or your life posture to let this message have impact beyond just the time we're sitting in here today? Those are the questions we'll ask you. I'll pray. We'll have a few reflection questions. Scroll. Process these through the lens of just what's going on in your soul. And then I'll come back and close this in about two and a half minutes. God, thank you for what we've heard today. Thank you that Jesus is coming back. That is the sound of joy. Let us repeat that until he's here. In Jesus' name, amen.